Welcome to the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Axel Ragnarsson, and on this show, I dissect how seasoned multifamily investors started, built, and scaled their businesses. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another quick solo episode here on the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the nuance around multifamily real estate. Um, and a lot of people just talk about multifamily real estate as one sector, as one asset class, whether it's people in the business that are talking about uh, their strategy as somebody who's going out there and looking to actively invest in multifamily real estate, or people from afar, right? Whether it's a news outlet, passive investors, economists, they just talk about multifamily real estate as one asset class. And the reality is it's incredibly nuanced and it's actually market dependent class dependent in, in terms of class A, B, C, or D. And it's also strategy dependent. Um, there's different ways to invest in real estate. You can buy stabilized deals. You can buy value add deals. You can buy development deals. They all kind of fall under the multifamily real estate bucket, but they're incredibly different investment types. So I want to share some thoughts as it relates to what we do in our business, why we think the specific sector that we're investing in, um, the very narrowed down sector within the multifamily real estate sector itself, is actually very recession resistant, why we think it aligns really well with what the overall economy is doing right now and what the market is doing. And just talk a little bit about the nuance around the multifamily real estate sector. So as I mentioned, I want to first start with market, right? Again, a Wall Street Journal, you know, or Forbes or whatever comes out with an article, multifamily real estate is in trouble, right? That's the headline. Great headline, good, you know, very clickbait, gets people to read the article. And an uneducated reader who's not in this business might look at that and and lump in um, class C multifamily in Texas in you know in Houston just picking a place versus class A multifamily in Los Angeles, and they think oh they're all in trouble it's all multifamily and when in reality those are almost two completely different worlds like they're not even really comparable in a lot of ways. So when I say market dependent, what do I mean by that? I mean what is the underlying, you know, what are the underlying fundamentals in that market? Rent growth, expense growth, population growth, et cetera. What is the tax environment like? And I'm not talking like income or sales tax. I'm talking property taxes. Um, what's going on in the insurance, you know, in terms of uh, are insurance carriers still writing policies in that market or are there just less insurance carriers and insurance costs are, you know, going through the roof? What were some of the dynamics in that market over the last three, four, five years? Was there a, a ton of interest, a ton of investors diving into that market, you know, bidding up prices, compressing the cap rates, and uh, and ultimately just you know capital flooded to this market in in such a way that there was an excess, and now we're retracting back to something that's a little bit more normal. There's all these nuances, right? So, for example, let me use that example. Or I'll I'll use the the location example again. Classy multifamily in Houston's getting hammered because insurance costs are going to the moon, property taxes reassess every year. It's very easy to just build more housing in Houston, very relaxed zoning laws, very relaxed development laws. There's plenty of land to just keep building housing. And that's a recipe for rents to come down a little bit, for you know cap rates to go up a little bit, for, for people to want to pay less for a certain stream of income than what they were paying back in 19, 20, 21. Um, class A multifamily, class A multifamily in LA. On the flip side, it's a very supply constrained market. It's incredibly hard to build in LA. Um, you're catering to an entirely different resident base. Oftentimes, your pro, you know, I, I believe your property taxes are restricted in terms of how much they can grow each year. I believe it's like two percent or something. I don't know 
LA real estate, California real estate. Take that with a grain of salt, but there's mechanisms in place to prevent property taxes from growing at such a rate that jeopardizes the underwriting of the person who was actually buying the property, right? Totally different dynamics, totally different fundamentals, right? So again, it's important to, to think about the nuances of markets. As it relates to class, right? I, I think this is a really interesting part of this conversation and one that I want to dive into a little bit more thoroughly than, you know, kind of market uh, and strategy is really class. Class A multifamily is an entirely different investment than class C multifamily. They're hard to compare. They cater to two entirely different, uh, you know, groups of residents. Oftentimes the operating costs are totally different in both of these scenarios. Something that we're seeing in the market right now. And, you know, this is, I don't know, I haven't really seen this discussed a lot on podcasts as it relates to multifamily real estate or real estate in general or just online. But when we think about what the most resilient jobs will be if there is an economic recession and people start losing their jobs or income start to, to go down or start to taper off comparatively to how quickly they've grown the last few years, what, what industries are going to be hit the hardest? What sectors of the employment base are going to be hit, hit the hardest? Let's think about San Francisco. A uh, very large percentage of the renters in San Francisco are employed by companies that are in tech. Tech has taken a massive hit. Tons of layoffs. Value, you know, stock prices coming down. Um, you know, business models are are changing in that industry in order to align with what's going on economically. A lot of people lose their, you know, lost their jobs out there, right? So if you're a, the owner of a Class A building in San Francisco. Your resident base is is significantly, you know, it's been more affected by what's happened over the last call it twelve months, and what will continue to likely happen if there is a recession, than somebody who owns a classy multifamily community in a major city that's primarily occupied by folks that work in trades or the service industry, um, you know, or 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 in, in or industries that are less affected in an economic recession, right? Something that is also important to think about is the, the the rapid speed at which jobs are being sent overseas or replaced by AI. For example, the financial industry, um, AI is probably going to come for a lot of those jobs in the future, um, or those jobs are going to get sent overseas to someone that can do it at twenty-five, you know, twenty bucks an hour, twenty-five bucks an hour, where somebody in the U.S. is getting paid fifty to sixty bucks an hour to do that same job. For example, a job like financial, you know, just uh, roles like analyst roles, right? Whether you're underwriting, whether you're doing some kind of data management, data, you know, um, you're analyzing data of some kind. That's a skill set that could be that could be outsourced very easily. There are people all around the world that can execute that work for a fraction of the cost that it costs somebody in a major city to do it. Um, that employment base is going to continue to be sent into a different geographical area and away from the US. And that's happening right now as we speak. Like that's that's only going to really ramp up over the next five years because every company is now really comfortable with working with a bunch of remote employees. And it's like, hey, if they're if they're remote in the US, they might as well be remote abroad. So again, that's something that probably affects class B plus, class A real estate very significantly because it's catering to those types of folks. Call it, you know, white collar workers, right? If we want to very broadly generalize. On the flip side, there's a lack of individuals who are working in jobs that just keep everything going. Plumbers, electricians, uh, folks that work in construction, folks that work um, in, in, in service jobs that require you to be in person, like, you know, landscaping company, right? That's a job that requires you to be in person to maintain the infrastructure of a community, of a home, of a property, right? Um, folks that are working in retail, right? Folks that are just on the front lines, they're heading to a place of work every day. They are not working remotely. There's a shrinking and shrinking group of individuals that are doing those jobs and there's less of them every single year. 
So if you have a community that caters to those individuals, you're catering, you're, you know, you're serving a group of residents whose employment is going to be pretty resilient, you know, comparatively to what I just described on the other end of the spectrum. I like to think that class C is going to be a more resilient asset class over the next five, 10 years because the employment base is going to be more resilient because wages are going to continue to grow. You know, I think, uh, you know, our company has been trying to hire maintenance techs, um, you know, at our property management office. And it's so much harder to hire somebody in a maintenance position, in a construction position, in a position like that, than it is to hire somebody who's working out of the office. It takes twice as much time, twice as much effort. There's just less of those folks. So that's something that we feel really supports the thesis of buying, you know, kind of B, B, B minus, C plus class properties. Now, in terms of strategy, right? Development, value add, uh, you know, buying stabilized deals, they're all totally different. When you buy a stabilized deal, you're oftentimes accepting what the market's going to give you. If the market rent grows, great. If if cap rates go down, great. You've cre- you're creating value. If that city grows and there's a higher population of renters, you know, which which basically pushes rent growth, great. Or you know, um, or maybe there's some kind of opportunity to repurpose this asset in in another way. But then we're starting to get into the value add conversation. But when you buy a stabilized deal, it's basically arbitrage between cap rate and interest rate, and and the and the conversation is boiled down to that, assuming quality level of operations across the board. That's an entirely different strategy, especially right now where interest rates have basically exceeded cap rates in most core markets. If you know, and again, I don't think that should be the case. I think that they're I think that cap rates are going to expand so that people can achieve positive leverage, but that's a different conversation. That is very uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to do any stabilized deals right now. I don't I, wouldn't, I don't believe in that strategy. I don't think that that fundamentally makes a lot of sense at today's pricing, assuming you're paying you know, call it today's market cap rates and accepting some negative leverage. Now, value add is a totally different game where you may be buying a property at a five cap because the rents are really low, the expenses are really high, it's not being operated really well. And maybe it's a six cap market and you're quote unquote overpaying according to the marketplace and your debt's at seven, but maybe you have a roadmap to turning it into a an eight cap property, a seven and a half cap property. You can renovate the exterior, you can push the rents, um, there's some other operational play. You can reduce the expenses, and now the property is producing at a higher level, and now you've created value. Right? That's a different strategy. That's a different investment type. You know, multifamily real estate, just as a broad generalization, does not capture the nuance between those two. And then development is an entirely different animal, right? You're 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 building a new community. You're based. You know, that's an active income source. That's um. That's less, de- I mean, it's obviously dependent on what the overall market's doing because you're trying to underwrite to a sales price. But again, that can't really be lumped into this conversation either. So I'm not sure who this podcast episode is for. I think it's for the active folks out there who are maybe trying to more uh, more accurately define their strategy. I think this is really helpful for folks that are newer to multifamily real estate, uh, folks that are passively invested or just getting alarmed looking at headlines. But just understanding that there's so much nuance within this overall investment class that um, that when you read these headlines online, they're not indicative of what's actually happening. So uh, hopefully you learned something in this episode. Hopefully I uh, hopefully I you know gave you something to work with here. And if so, uh, please consider leaving the podcast a, a rating and a review. It takes two seconds of your time, and you know really means a lot to us here in terms of putting it together and helping this get in front of more folks. But um, thanks again for listening, as always, and I will catch you guys on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode on the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. If you learned something new during the show, please consider sharing this episode with a friend, family member, or business partner, or just leaving a rating and review as it helps the show get noticed by more folks. Catch you next week.